Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hi. So today we have a really important conversation with our friend Adele Dalla, who is the executive director of the Center for Social Innovation here in Toronto. Now, he has a very personal reflection on their journey towards becoming uh, an organization that I guess does better around equity and inclusion. And I think that uh, one of the things he talks about is that it's, this is a journey, right? It's not a, a it's not a destination. It's sort of ongoing work. And I think that that's really relevant for all of us to know and understand that we have to start where we are today and continue to take action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, you know, CSI, uh, they published the uh, the key findings of their demographic uh, survey, which I, I felt was the right, uh, the right approach. Um, I think in many cases at the heart of diversity and inclusion is, is transparency. Um, so when we get, um, uh, familiar and comfortable with, with sharing where we are at, uh, then we can sort of chart a path, path forward. Um, we see transparency at the heart of, uh, the pay equity movement, right? When, when we, uh, start to disclose salaries, it becomes more difficult to, uh, to reward people, uh, unequally for the same kind of work. Um, so I think that, you know, um, Adil has taken a really important step in, in being very forthcoming about where CSI is and, and what kind of work, um, they have yet to do. I also want to shout out, uh, the working group, TWG, um, who also published, um, their work on on becoming a more ge- gender equitable con- uh, company, especially in in the field of uh, technology, um, so they also sort of took that step towards saying this is where we are, this is what we've done, um, and basically provided that as a case study and 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 provided the tips and tools for other technology companies who want to work on on being more inclusive and more more diverse. Um, so yeah, transparency, go for it, guys. Mm-hmm. As we uh, go into the interview, I just want to give a little reflection. We did record this interview with Adil in advance of the interview we aired last week with Rania El Mugamar, uh, which taught us to reflect a little bit on our own language. And so you'll notice that some of what we talked about last week is not applied to this interview. And I want to take a moment to just... Um, to acknowledge that and to acknowledge that we're still learning and we hope you can learn from our learning. Uh, so here is the interview. Adil Dalla is a civic entrepreneur and community organizer who is driven to co-create new and inclusive economies. He is currently the executive director of the Center for Social Innovation Toronto. He was recently named a Bali Fellow awarded to local economy leaders who are creating the new economy. He is the first Muslim to ever receive the honor. In addition to his role at CSI, he chairs the board for the award-winning Stop Gap Foundation, which focuses on improving physical accessibility in communities. He also co-founded and continues to chair Camp Reset, a non-profit and acclaimed summer camp for adults that is uniquely addressing issues around mental health and loneliness for adults through play and digital detoxing. Please welcome Adil. Hello. 
I'm so excited to have you here. And before we get started, I'm hoping you can tell our listeners a little bit about the Center for Social Innovation by way of introducing your journey to uh, becoming more inclusive. Of course. And uh, thank you so much for having me here today. Um, The Center for Social Innovation is a nonprofit social enterprise. Uh, We started almost 15 years ago um, because our five founders all felt that there was a need for shared space uh, for people who work in the realm of social enterprise and innovation in the city of Toronto. Uh, At the time, uh, the, the concept of a bunch of social mission organizations sharing space uh, seemed a bit out there. Uh, the prevailing thought was what would happen if uh, a bunch of nonprofits shared space? They'd probably compete for resources, talent, etc. But our founders actually believed in the potential of people. They believed that uh, if we shared space, not only would we be making things more affordable and accessible to folks, uh, but that the opportunity to connect and collide our respective networks and opportunities would mean that we could all rise together. And so that, that was the genesis of the idea. And, you know, almost 15 years later, the Center for Social Innovation now has three beautiful homes in Toronto and affiliates in other cities outside of, uh, outside of the city. And um, we're, we are home to thousands of people who collectively share a common idea to put people and planet first and who all put their hands up to join CSI because they want to be part of a community of people doing this work. And we provide them with space, uh, but we also provide them with a bunch of services, coaching, uh, programs, microloans to accelerate what they do. And most importantly, we provide and animate a community. Uh, Communities uh, don't just happen. They require constant nurturing. And uh, for me, really, over my last eight years of CSI, specifically my last six as a staff member, I've been focused most on uh, the animating and stewardship of our culture and our community. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a great community, having been a member of that and seen a lot of charities and nonprofits and other uh, social enterprises come out of there um, and, and grow and thrive there in community over competition it, it works for for CSI. Tell me a little bit about where and when it became clear to you that your impact in the organization or something you wanted to really look at and explore was around equity and inclusion. Well, it's hard for me to answer that without just giving a little bit of my own personal narrative, mm-hmm. uh, and which predates the organization. Um, you know, for, for many times in my life, uh, growing up from a very early age, uh, I, ex- I, I experienced exclusion and, as a consequence, isolation. And um, and as a consequence, uh, I myself have been had my own passion around this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, in, in with the advantage of retrospect, um, I've also identified how I've kind of complied or been complicit with. Uh, our inequitable world in multiple ways. And I'll give you a really, really uh, obvious example. For me, uh, when I when I started school and I introduced myself, most folks couldn't say my name, uh, which is Adil. And so it, it morphed over the years from Adil to Adil to Adil. And eventually people just went to Pickle because they figured out a good way to remember my name was Adil Pickle. 
And, um, and, and so this beautiful Arabic name, Adil, which means just got transformed into pickle. And, and, and it's a, it's a kind of a funny story at this point, but, um, my acceptance of that, uh, actually is really indicative of my own, uh, journey around feeling isolated and then feeling that I needed to conform in so many different ways in order to be included. Mm-hmm. And so when I found CSI, uh, you know, about eight years ago, um, I, I was feeling isolated myself at the time, particularly from a, a work perspective. I had just moved back to Toronto. I was looking to do social mission work, but I didn't know where to find it. And I remember the day that CSI, you know, I, I, the first time I ever encountered it, I came up the elevator over at our old location at 215 Spadina. I walked out and uh, into the space and there was open space and dogs walking around and a diversity of people. And I met the CEO, Tanya Sermon, and she explained to me what CSI was all about. And I knew I had found home. And for me, home at that point was a place of like-minded individuals. But I didn't filter it as a place for people who had similar shared, uh, who had similar lived experiences to me and similar or different lived experiences than me. Mm-hmm. And it was only only when I moved into my role as a director of culture and I was invited to in this role to steward CSI's culture, did I begin to hear stories from other people who were both in and out of the community about their experiences not feeling welcome uh, and excluded at times. And relating that to my own experience, I felt really sad about this. Um, and and became more passionate about doing work within our community to make it more welcoming for more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I will say I met you as Adil, but I will call you Adil from now on. Um, and I think that that moment where you sort of reflected and, and said, this is happening beyond just my experience, a lot of people freeze in that moment. And you didn't, you took action and you started a journey around uh, changing that culture. Can you tell me a little bit about that? those first early days of saying, okay, this is something that's really important for us, not just to pay lip service to, but to take action around? Yeah, of course. And uh, to be honest, I had to have people you know, not literally, but what felt like them shaking me to tell me to take action. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm so in love with what CSI is and 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 what we do that when I did hear people's experiences, as much as it did register as important to me, the step towards taking action was a lot harder. And I think a lot of that had to do a with me not wanting to um, ruin my perfect little bubble about what our community was and B because I also didn't want to confront the own work that I had to do. Mm-hmm. And so instances of exclusion uh, incurred in our community and it was hard. It, I, I registered them, but taking action on it was a leap that I struggled with. And I, and I had incredible um, uh, uh, educators and activists and just humans around me like Rania and Shelby and the like who, um, who really had, it really confronted me uh, on the issue, and and, um, and particularly, uh, there's one moment I just I'm thinking about that comes to mind, where we had an instance of Islamophobia in in our community, and I, I myself am I'm a Muslim man, and I remember um, Rania, uh, who's an equity uh, educator and artist and activist, and, and unquestionably one of my greatest teachers on this topic, and and you know Rania. Um, 
she, she really was, she was really upset. She said, Adil, we have to provide education in this community. Otherwise, people, uh, will, this, these matters will just get worse if we don't address them. And um, it took me a while to accept that because I didn't want to acknowledge that we were, um, we were a community where people didn't feel welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I really, I really have to, you know, in, in short, answer your question by honoring, uh, you know, the people I mentioned and many more um, who were instrumental in helping me get moved to action. But here's what's interesting about that. Um, often the people who are doing the labor to bring attention to this issue are the people who either exist on the margins or have experience on the margins themselves. Mm-hmm. Leave a lot of the labor, as, as I did myself, um, to, to people... Uh, to people who are facing uh, exclusion in some way, and um, and I really I see that now, and um, and I want to make sure that I'm not perpetuating that cycle going further. I think that's such an important point. Uh, well, there's a few really important points there. One is that um, you had people around you who could speak up, and um, and for better, for worse, you, you really relied on their, um, gentle pushing or not so gentle pushing to, to get there. Um, but I think your reflection now that that's not necessarily their responsibility, that that's your responsibility as a leader is something that a lot of people can, can learn from. Can you tell us a little bit about how, now that you know and understand that, how can people be, proactive instead of um, relying on uh, people who are experiencing that uh, exclusion? How can we take ownership of it ourselves when we're in a position of power? You know, a number of things come to mind. First and foremost, uh, you know, the power of education. Um, You know, we, if we look at even like the context of uh, in Canada, our relationship to uh, the, the history of indigenous peoples in our country, like we, we've, if you've grown up in Canada and gone through the Canadian education system, you have not gotten the honest or the full story as okay. it relates to our role as settlers here. And, um, and so how could you possibly create an equitable community that is, that is uh, doing reconciliation in an authentic and meaningful way if you don't even know the actual history, the real history of our country? And I didn't know the real history. And it took um, an Indigenous elder, an educator, uh, Bear Standing Tall, who, who, who's within the CSI community, to really educate me um, uh, on the on the the full, well, as much truth and honesty as I uh, as I uh, as he provided. And um, and so I think like I think the you know the hardest thing is actually just taking that step and learning and. And the reason why that's hard is because we don't want to acknowledge that we ourselves are part of the problem. Mm-hmm. When we, you know, when we look at issues around gender or race or class discrimination, we look at the extreme examples and we say, that's not me. But the reality is, is that we all have our own lived experiences and we all have our own gaps because we don't have everybody else's lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And so being honest with ourselves um, is important in order to kind of making that leap in education and the truth really sets us free. Mm-hmm. 
And that has been instrumental for me. And through that education and through that education, you know, one of the biggest things, you know, you use the word, you know, people who have power. Um, one of the biggest things that I've, I've had to grow a lot around was recognizing the amount of power that I hold um, in part because of my identity, particularly as a man, in part because I have my leadership position, in part because of how I show up in the world. Um, you know, the thing about acknowledging that you have um, uh, biases and, and blinders and prejudice within you is that uh, it feels like you, um, in, the, in the process, are giving up your power uh, but in actual, actuality, my experience has been it's empowering to acknowledge my power it's, and it's empowering to acknowledge um, where I need to do work on it. And, and that's been a really meaningful journey for me and, uh, and really impactful as a leader. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the word journey, and I want to talk a little bit about that because this is an ongoing learning and education, right? It's not like you attend one workshop and you're educated around um, all, all the things. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about um, your own ongoing learning and where other, you know, where, you, where you've really found the most impact and what you'd recommend for other people who are on that journey and looking to continue to be more aware of their own position and the position of others? Of course. Well, I, I'll, I'll start by saying there's, there's um, something within Buddhism that I, uh, I really, really registered. I'm not Buddhist myself, but it, but the sentiment really registered with me. And, and, the, sentiment, and the, the line was, the only person you can judge uh, are previous versions of yourself. Mm-hmm. And I shared that because ultimately the journey for me has been focused on self first and foremost. And uh, other people are, you know, we're all at different parts of the spectrum. And um, I personally don't want to spend much energy judging where different people are at because there might be so there's probably so many reasons where they are, where they are. And I actually think it's really privileged that I've had the opportunity of education and incredible uh, educators uh, and community around me to, to be where I'm at, where, where what I've learned thus far. Um, but I'll, I'll share a story actually of something that happened actually quite recently. Um, for the past for the past four years, I've been organizing um, a, a community uh, adult digital detox event called Reset, mm-hmm. uh, and it happens every summer. And uh, there's a lot of overlap with it and the CSI community. And I was one of the founders of it. And um, uh, this past year, I actually took a step back from organizing, and a, a couple of my Fellow co-founders uh, uh, stepped have stepped in and into the the leadership of it, and uh, it was really exciting for me to just show up this year. What I didn't realize was um, uh, there was an event that happened there called Mimosas and Samosas, and the the idea of the event uh, from the people who organized it there was to celebrate uh, Asian culture within a festival sandbox. Um, because those two things don't usually intersect. And I cried at that event. Um, I, I had a lot of tears because I realized that when we founded Reset, there was eight of us on the team that found of it, founded it. Four of us were of Asian uh, identity, and our identity did not show up in the event at all. Wow. And the connection that I made for myself is that for most of my life, I've been self-centering, self-centering my own identity because it didn't fit within 
the, the uh, powerful or the in crowd or class. And so I'm really, you know, talking about journey, like I'm, I'm really at a journey and I'm learning a lot of things myself and including where I have been um, part of my own problem in terms of not actually prioritizing my culture. Even going back to that story, I told you about the name, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't stand firm on what my actual name was. I, I conformed to that situation. And certainly I could hold some judgment about to others and to why society is the way it is and why I have to conform in certain ways. But ultimately that, that judgment doesn't serve me. Um, what serves me is actually uh, unlearning what exists within me right now um, and trying to look forward with the recognition that I actually can now be part of a different story. And that's what I've been trying to do. Fantastic. I think that that articulation of at once being both part of, you know, holding power and being disempowered in other aspects of your identity is is also really important like Mm. we we don't just take up one position and it's fluid Mm. so i think that's a really important thing to keep in our minds as we go through this journey yeah and i think also you know this is that comment is particularly important around my own learnings around gender Mm -hmm. um you know as a as a, a man particularly with a lot of power um I've been learning. Um, I've been learning a lot around um, what it means to uh, create more space, uh, what it means to step back, um, and what it means to stand with. And um, and you know, I if, if I could you know be totally totally frank about this, um, you know, I I remember when I first read the book Lean In, for example. Uh, I didn't actually understand what that meant for me in terms of where I go. And, um, and for, for years, I kind of struggled with that idea. Um, but where I'm at now is, you know, exactly what you said, realizing that there's a fluidity to, to, to power and, um, and that one of the best things I can do is let go of my need for power or my position in power um, and not feel like that's actually a disempowering thing. In fact, actually, the most empowering thing you can do um, is actually share what you have, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's been a really big lesson for me. And I'm still I still have so much work on that particular journey um, and realizing how how I can be a part of the solution. Um, but uh, but I have a lot of work to do there. We all do. Um, I want to come back to that. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about about that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about or I want to um, hear from you about the project that you undertook at CSI around starting to benchmark and measure the Mm -hmm. experience of your members. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's a huge step and often a very scary one. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, I, I think, well, uh, tell us a little bit about it uh, and, and what you did. Um, yeah, we, so we've had for the past four years, four years, we've had a committee called the IDEA Committee at CSI. IDEA stands for Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Access. And the purpose of this committee has been to steward our work around uh, these four pillars 
And on that committee, uh, we, we have um, a gentleman, Shaquille, who's uh, belongs to leader, uh, an organization called Anima Leadership, uh, which he um, leads along with his wife, Anahid. And um, Shaquille had suggested that we uh, look into the idea, Shaquille being a community member or a member of the idea committee, Shaquille had suggested that we look into benchmarking our demographic um, uh, data in our uh, community. And, uh, and so what we did was we uh, used uh, census questions to form uh, a demographic survey, which we subsequently shared with our board, our staff, our community, and our volunteers. And we asked everything from uh, um, folks' gender to their race to their religious uh, practices. Um, and just for context, um, when uh, inf- information, all the information was, of course, private. And uh, when information, demographic information, uh, is collected for the purpose of improving um, one's diversity, then uh, then that is appropriate and legal. But uh, otherwise, obviously, there's a lot more complexity around that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, uh, so we we performed the survey in 2014, and then spent uh, a couple of years. Um, learning, analyzing, and implementing from what the survey told us. And uh, it, it has been um, one of, for me personally, one of my hardest professional journeys, in large part because it just surfaced so many of the things that I didn't know or didn't look for or didn't want to look for uh, in in um in telling the story of who's at, who's in our community and more importantly, who's not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said this earlier in the, in the talk, what, where I'm at now is um, the truth has set us free and the truth. And I feel that really personally for myself, because instead of, um, instead of being, uh, cho- you know, choosing to be ignorant about who's not in our community um, as, as Rania uh, Mugamer, who I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, mentioned, uh, to me one time, she said, uh, data saves us breath. Mm-hmm. It saves people the time, um, particularly the same people who are doing a lot of this labor over and over again. It saves them the time, uh, of proving or trying to, um, tell us a story. And it tells the story for us. And it told us a story, uh, at CSI about a lot of work that we need to do. Uh, both inner and within the community, and uh, it has set us free and 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 put us towards a direction where we can actually meaningfully do the work of inclusion. Fantastic. So, what what are those steps that you're that you're taking? I mean, you mentioned before creating space, stepping back, and standing with or alongside. Can mm. you um, talk about those and other things that you found are are things that you're starting to implement? Yes, of course. Um, you know, fundamentally, people join communities, organizations, etc., when they see people that reflect themselves within those communities. Especially for the communities that have that are the most marginalized, that have, that whose experiences traditionally have been the least safe. Um, it, there is a relationship to feeling safer and more welcome when you see people who look like you within those organizations. And so um, that that thinking has been really important for us. Um, but the thing is, it just doesn't happen. And if you are specifically saying, oh, we're missing X community, 
let's let's focus on just getting that community there's a real risk of just uh, entering into the world of tokenizing mm-hmm. and so to, to do it meaningfully um what we've been trying to do is to ensure that our um our organization at the very highest of levels reflects the kind of community that we aspire to have and so the results of the demographic survey sparked uh, a series of uh, conversations at a board level and subsequent action to renew the membership of our board to ensure that our board uh, was in itself starting to be more reflective of the community that we aspire to be. And just for context, um, you know, there's, there was a question that came up of, well, how much is enough? And, I don't know the answer to that question, but we did use, we benchmarked our data against the city of Toronto's because we found that it's like the most, um, the easiest thing to compare against in terms of seeing like, well, how do we fare? And we started looking at our board, uh, our board data that we had versus the city of Toronto's. And we started seeing, okay, well, where are, where are the gaps? And then we worked from our board and started looking at our staff and so on and so forth. But the reason why our board and staff are so important in this is because Frankly, from a community and operations perspective, we make the majority of the decisions that happen at CSI. And those decisions are influenced by our lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And the dream to get to is that you don't have to you don't have to think too much about including X community or Y community in a tokenizing way because it's just happening. Because from a decision and a leadership perspective, um, that thinking has already been um, factored in at the very beginning. And so I would say, um, look, taking a good long look at your leadership, uh, and who's at the table from a leadership perspective is one of the biggest things that we've done. The second thing, which I've already spoken about is education. It is, it is now mandatory for all of our staff and our volunteers to take, uh, diversity training. Uh, and not just uh, one layer of it, there's multiple layers of that training that's provided to them. Um, and as a further addition, our entire community gets access to free diversity and inclusion training on a variety of topics. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and so we're, we're creating a culture of, of learning uh, and openness uh, within, our, within our community. And so, I, so that's, that's the second thing. And then I, I think like to, to bring up the, the demographic uh, survey again, um, something I didn't mention is that we publicly published those results. Mm-hmm. And that was really important for us uh, to do as, as for a lot of reasons, but particularly as a measure of accountability, particularly as a way of communicating to the people who are not reflected in our community that we are aware of where our shortfalls are and we want to do this work. And it's, this is hard because in, in publishing, you know, publishing these kind of public, in publishing these sort of results, um, you know, we in many ways are acknowledging, um, a, a lot of areas where we have work to do. And especially for an organization, for people who have power, for institutions, um, that, that's challenging to do because, uh, you don't want to look bad. But, um, uh, but the reality is, is that, you know, if you can't really do the work until people, until you're honest with people and yourselves about it. And so I feel like publishing the results for us was a really important measure of accountability and communication. And we subsequently have, uh, started to publish more about our work in this area, including everything from 
uh, a new anti-discrimination harassment policy that we've created, uh, and we've embedded that in all of our contracts within the community uh, to to stories about um, about the different work that's being done in the community on this topic, and um, and that has really really been powerful for us to do. Fantastic. I think that that is a very important point around building this into all levels of the organization. Um, and I kind of, we're, we're running out of time, but I want to end on one question, which is going back, sort of combining a couple of thoughts. So one is that, you know, we all hold these various positions and understanding that even if you get great diversity um, throughout the organization and all of that is, is influencing decisions and the organization is, is this sort of organism of diversity and inclusion, we still at the same time hold various positions of power and those coexist. So can you talk a little bit about your own, um, actions as a leader um, who simultaneously holds both of those positions, what are some of the things that you find yourself doing now or reflecting on now that you wouldn't have before? Hmm. Great question. Um, I think first of all, and this is connected to you know the question around, or, or my last point about communications, um, I'm not celebrating what our actions are in this area. Um, I think this is really important. Um, it's important to communicate, but there's a, there's a fine line between communicating and celebrating. And, and the reason why I want to make that distinction is um, uh, when you celebrate, you know, the, the actions that you as an individual or you as a community might take um, around making it more inclusive, um, it becomes, it feels like the action is more performative than genuine. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's been a really important learning for me. And I think, I think we certainly at many points were, you know, wanting to, to really um, just tell one side of the story. And, and I think even, you know, recently we released a report around an event we did at Honest Ed's called Toronto for Everyone. And it was an impact report. And we talked about all the wonderful things that we did particularly around making the event more inclusive and welcoming to folks. But we also shared all of our learnings about where we, we failed to live up to those expectations and those ideals. And, and, and that, that was how we straddled, um, you know, honoring the work that we did, uh, but also not in a way that was, Hey, look at us. We're so great. And I think this is just really important in terms of um, our mindset and what we're communicating. So I think that was, that's a, that was a really big thing for me to learn. Um, the other thing, it's come up a couple of times in our conversation, but um, it's important that I consistently am aware and name my power. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially in situations uh, where people are sharing their experiences with me uh, and they're having great experiences. Um, a lot of times because of the power that I hold, they may not be comfortable sharing that. And so that they're, they're, their issue of exclusion may not actually be reported on. And so the more I can do to create a, a safe space or safer space for them um, by way of acknowledging uh, that I do have power and by way of ensuring that um, uh, I'm aware of that, uh, I actually think that that has, has been very helpful uh, to, to really balance, um, uh, you know, the, the vibe in a room and, 
uh, and ensure people feel more comfortable speaking out of certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you talk a little bit about a little bit more about that? Because I think that for executive directors of small organizations and other listeners of ours, that's a struggle, right? To to be a leader, but also to create that space or to find ways. Um, if it's not people coming directly to you to find other mechanisms to hear that feedback, what, like, what does that look like and felt like? And, and what has that been like for, for you? I think, you know, to the, the second part of what you, you mentioned, uh, it's been really important that within our community, there's multiple people to, through whom feedback can come through. Um, uh, simply because I recognize that not everyone's comfortable providing me with feedback, uh, particularly in instances where I even, I may, I actually may be part uh, or significant part of the problem. Um, uh, you know, so I think as an executive director, um, you know, you have to be comfortable, uh, and, and open and vulnerable to the idea that, uh, there's, there's other, there's other people in your organization who may be better receivers of uh, other people's experiences. Um, and so that's been really important. And, and so often when I'm in rooms with folks who are providing feedback, I have someone in there with me. Um, uh, uh, often we're, we're conscious to ensure that uh, we, we both acknowledge and name our power in the room. And we often are conscious to acknowledge that there's other ways and other people to speak to. Um, but I think like, you know, Cindy, I think like this is the interesting thing. Uh, power, power is fairly abundant. Mm-hmm. And so as an executive director, like, holding on to my power um, doesn't make any sense because in actuality, I want everyone to have power because when we all have power, we all have the opportunity uh, to rise into our highest selves and to do the work that we're going to do. And so I think like this, this, the scarcity that we have um, often and I, I've had, um, you know, in the past uh, has, has limited my ability to create a, a genuine and safer space for people. And so I think that's a big part of that. Um, I think one thing that I found that's really been valuable from a cultural perspective is that at, at many, uh, sorry, at all community events and at many of our meetings right now, I start the meeting by providing a land acknowledgement. And, um, and, the, and the importance of that is I'm, I'm um, of course, doing hopefully uh, one of the types of work you can do around a reconciliation, but I'm also as hopefully communicating a message that at the, uh, the kind of the top, uh, highest level of the hierarchy within our organization that, um, that I, I believe that this work is important and thereby communicating to others, uh, a certain openness to conversations, uh, and experiences. Um, and that, that's, that observation has come through feedback that I've been given from folks who have provided feedback in the past. So um, there's a lot here to unpack, uh, mm-hmm. further and I'm happy to, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's a great, great starting point and understanding that this is something that we can all work on on an ongoing basis. Uh, and I think you've given us some really good starting points. So thank you. My pleasure. I, uh, you know, thank you so much. I, um, uh, you know, it's just to acknowledge something. One more thing about you know, power and privileges is it's been my privilege uh, to both be in my position and to, uh, as a consequence, have opportunities like this one. Um, and one of the things, um, one of the things that you can do that I've learned that's really uh, meaningful and valuable uh, when you have privileges that provide opportunities like this one is to amplify 
others as much as possible who may not have this opportunity. So I've, I've, I've tried to do that and try to model that. And, and, you know, as it's come up many times in this conversation, uh, I keep trying to get better. I have a lot of work to do. Um, but uh, I really appreciate this opportunity, Cindy. Thank you. And actually, I was going to uh, acknowledge that I know you don't do this work on your own and that you have a number of people that you've been really good at um, referencing or, or giving credit to around their work. So I want to acknowledge that too, because I know that there's many people uh, alongside you in this and that uh, that they've, they're incredible and, and really doing great work together. So thanks to all of, all of them as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. If anyone wants to learn more about CSI or around the reports you've done uh, or any other education and learning on this topic, where can they go? Um, you know, I would, uh, for CSI, obviously visiting our website at socialinnovation.org. And uh, you, if you want to visit specifically our work on this uh, in this area, socialinnovation.org slash idea, I-D-E-A. Um, and I'm also happy, you know, I, I would, I would recommend checking out, uh, the websites for Bear Standing Tall, Rania Al Mugamar, and Anima Leadership as being, you know, a few, few of the people and organizations that have been really valuable to me. Uh, and you can actually find information about all of them through, uh, through our website as well. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I would start there as some external resources to us. Fantastic. We'll include all those links in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much. And, We'll, uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.